Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cavalry Audio. Ladies and gentlemen, it is May 26, 2022. I am Matt Belinsky. This is your weekly dose of sanity, the prevailing narrative. And so there was going to be some heavy subject matter on this episode. Regardless, today I am interviewing a gentleman named Mike Schellenberger. He is an activist, author, and has become kind of the thorn in the side of the California political community, in particular, Gavin Newsom, because he is running for governor. And he's been very vocal and been getting a lot of media attention on Joe Rogan and a lot of other um, high, you know, high, high audience media programs talking about the problem. Problems that are festering here in California, the ones that are dark and unpleasant, like addiction, poverty, homelessness, crime, and how to deal with these issues. And so this is a discussion. Mike has probably the most constructive and insightful views of anyone who's running for office in the state of California on this stuff. And it's why he's gained uh, some traction and, and a, quite a big audience and some attention here. And so he and I get into all of those topics. It's a fascinating discussion. He's a brilliant and incredibly well-intentioned guy. I think you're going to really enjoy that chat. Um, but in terms of dark and and deep and heavy issues um the thing that's on every everyone's mind in America after the last couple of days after the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, Salvador Ramos went into Robe Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas and murdered 19, believe 19 overall, 17 of them children, I believe, a disgusting and deranged act of evil and one that's weighing on all of us. And this is only about a week or so after a white supremacist, Peyton Gendron from rural New York, traveled three, three hours to Buffalo specifically because he knew it had a heavy African-American population and indiscriminately killed 10 individuals at a grocery store ranging in all ages from the young to old two despicable acts of evil that just leave us shaking our head at at how does this happen in what would otherwise be a civilized country the richest nation in the world probably the most successful most powerful sovereign nation ever to exist at least in modern times and we have to deal with these horrendous acts and and you just you're left shaking your head and of course there is a media firestorm in response to both of them uh, all of these and then uh, everybody lines up on their side of the political aisle and starts posting on social media their owns their defenses their metaphors why it's somebody else's fault why it is the responsibility of this person that person or this group and it becomes just a cauldron of hate and hostility and tension and divisiveness and I man I just sit there and I'm thinking okay how can I add to the conversation here what is a healthier way to respond to these situations how do we work through these issues how do we have a more constructive dialogue so specifically in response to the Ramos murder yesterday because when these masks this one did not have a racial tint to it so the ones that don't have a racial tint seem to inspire a lot of conversation around access to guns and particularly because this was one in Texas where they're very loose gun laws and from what it appears this is an 18 year old individual who is incredibly disturbed who is able to pretty easily access a very deadly weapon if not an AR-15 something that was very similar to and this is a semi-automatic 
assault rifle that seems to be used in a lot of these mass shootings. I'll get to more of the commentary on that in a second. So I'm in kind of a unique position here because on the one hand, uh, you know, I'm not a gun person. I don't own a gun. I don't plan on owning a gun. And I think that the a lot of the arguments made in justification for very lax or unconditional gun ownership, uh, a lot of these metaphors are really off. But similarly, I do understand, I do believe in the Second Amendment in principle and understand, I believe there's valid, rational reasons and justifications for people to believe that they should have the right to own a gun uh, and that a lot of responsible law-abiding gun owners do not believe that they should be punished or have their rights to self-defense kind of constricted because there are other people who perform bad acts. I do understand that. Absolutely. So I try to dive into it and, and I'm thinking about, okay, where where are we going right? Where are we going wrong in this conversation? How do we add to it? So I guess one of the things that catalyzes my interest in this topic and why I, I'd like to try to direct the conversation in a more healthy manner is that I see so much anger being thrown all over the place and very little of it is directed towards the deranged, sick lunatic who murdered those kids. It isn't that who where our anger should be directed. And I understand that there's only so much that we can do to this individual. He's already dead, even if he was alive. There's only so much anger, so much hate, so much you know, vitriol or release that we could that we could direct towards punishing this person. So it's like, okay, who, where can we uh, go punish other people? Where can we also get emotional satisfaction of blaming other people for this horrendous act that has caused so much pain and is just disgusting on every level? And I, listen, I get it. I understand that those are going to be that's going to be the visceral emotional reaction for a lot of people. But it looks like we're directing our anger in a lot of not constructive ways and directions, and a lot of people who really don't deserve it. And so, okay, so on the side of those who are you know, more fiercely anti-gun, they, one, they direct a ton of anger at anyone who opposes gun control measures and gun control laws and people who may be gun, gun owners or those who are more strident believers in the Second Amendment and Republican politicians, not all of them, but most of them that are more fiercely pro-gun. Okay, so we'll get to in a second where I think the pro-gun lobby goes wrong, particularly when they're hiding behind the Second Amendment, when just throwing their arms up in the air and saying, hey, there, there really you know, cannot be any restrictions. And they need to understand that the, with the Second Amendment, which I do believe should be maintained, comes responsibility, that you have the responsibility to continue to monitor your society and how guns are being used and accessed in them. And if there's a way to tweak it, to limit it, to modify it in a way that works out and, you know, for the greater good to protect people. And, and if there are, if, for instance, there are more people who wish to cause violence or terror to innocent individuals who are getting their hands licitly on on guns, it is your responsibility to try to take some steps to prevent that. Right. So the Second Amendment, I support it, but not unconditionally at all. It needs to be constantly monitored and tweaked. Um, those uh, who are anti-gun and the way that they react to these shootings, I feel like they're missing their mark when they just go, they, they direct so much anger and hate towards anyone who is a, an advocate for guns, owns guns, or simply rejects certain legislation to restrict guns. I'm sorry, guys. At the end of the day, the people who deserve our hate, outrage, and vitriol for murdering innocent people are the people who murder innocent people. You cannot go and ascribe all that blame to other people who advocate for laws that, for the most part, overwhelmingly, the people who uh, uh, utilize those laws do not go ahead and murder people. Right. I mean, I understand it. I get it. This is this is an emotional issue. You see these dead children. There's nothing more horrendous and disturbing on Earth. But the evildoers, the villains in this scenario are not your fellow citizens. The villains are the people who go and murder innocent children. 
And that's why when we're looking at, when we're diagnosing this, when we're looking at what are the inputs that are causing this, and yes, once again, and I'm going to get to it, absolutely, I think some of the gun laws need to change, the, and not just the gun laws, but the approach to firearms and guns overall, both legal, legal on the legalization and access side, but also on the enforcement side, because there's a ton of illegal guns out there. But regardless of how many people have access to guns, we have to get back to the issue of why do so many people in our society, for some reason, want to take these guns into scenarios, into situations and murder dozens of innocent individuals and children and elderly people for no reason whatsoever. That needs to be looked into. That needs to be diagnosed because it seems like everyone wants to compare our gun scenario to other countries. And I I think it's very difficult because we have a unique gun heritage. And even beyond that, while we have by far the most guns on Earth, if you you look at other countries that might have a third as many guns as we or a fifth as many guns. We might have five times as many guns, but we have 50 to 100 times as many mass shootings, right? Our society is producing an odd amount of people that want to indiscriminately murder innocent people. And that needs to look be looked into in terms of what are what are what is tearing at the at the societal fabric? What are the cultural inputs? What's going wrong in our society that's leading to people to get to this place? Because ideally we have to stop them from getting to this place in the first place, right? Um so, so how do we diagnose this problem? How do we see how do we figure out how to fix it by looking at it from a number of different angles? Because simply saying, hey, we need to get rid of all guns. I'm I'm sorry, that's not a practical consideration here. That's not in in a country like America with 200 million guns already in circulation with a deep cultural heritage of gun ownership and people understanding that, listen, there's a lot of people. uh, Hey, it is a valid concern. You are a rational observer if you look at the amount of people who illegally have guns and criminals who have guns and do want to desire your own firearm to protect yourself against them. That's not an irrational concern. So the idea that we're going to be able to get rid of all guns or even a significant amount of guns or implement a lot of the solutions that some other countries have implemented, I don't think that's realistic. So how do we still diagnose and still move this issue forward? Um, So there's a a gentleman named German Lopez. He now writes for the New York Times. I recently did some work for Vox. I've always found him to be pretty level-headed you know, he slants a little more liberal, but he's certainly I think he's certainly a sober and thoughtful commentator on these issues. You know, he looked into some studies on the impact of some of these around the edge uh, uh, gun laws, right? Like background checks, the idea of licensing. And it shows that, you know, background checks with this with this many guns already in circulation. Uh, background checks only do so much because there's a lot of people whose backgrounds do not show up. Uh, in if you have to go and check their background, they don't have a felony on their record. They don't necessarily have anything on their record beyond. And we're going to get to what might go on their record, which maybe we need to start looking at in a minute. But the background checks may stop some of these, but they're only they're only going to be limited in the, their effectiveness at preventing additional gun violence. Um, more significant steps and restrictions on access to guns that don't prevent outright prevent ownership. They seem to be more impactful, such as licensing. I'm sorry. You look around and you're like, you need a license to operate a motor vehicle. You sure as hell need a license to go and fly a plane. Seems like with the gravity, with the potential outcomes of owning a gun, whether it's yourself, uh, whether it, whether a law-abiding citizen who may or may not be able to handle a gun responsibly or someone who's malicious and has bad motives in owning a gun, um, it seems like this is the type of thing that warrants some licensing. And yeah, you could go look at 
uh, and you say, well, listen, we need, how is the state, how can we trust the state and the government to properly monitor these types of things and not reject someone uh, unnecessarily or on faulty premises um, from gun, gun ownership? You could, but you could say the same thing about cars. It's like, okay, if the government is not abusing its right to uh, reject licensing of someone for motor vehicles or airplanes or other any or fucking heavy machinery or buses or god knows what or all these other pieces of equipment that can be used for predominantly legitimate purposes but sometimes can be used for criminal purposes i mean the state seems to be doing an okay job the state fucks up a lot of other things but it seems to be doing an okay job on making sure that you know we strike a good balance between access to uh, a certain available equipment, machinery, and tools, and needing to be trained or at least go through a certain process to get access to those tools, right? And if we required, if you had to go through, in order to get a gun, a firearm, if you had to go through a certain amount of training or go jump through a couple hoops, that in other than a couple circumstances where someone needed a gun immediately for self-protection, which is, let's be honest, it's not in many of the cases. That's a very restricted minority of the cases where someone needs a firearm i think you would catch it would this would capture a lot of people or prevent a lot of people who did want to com- commit evil who did have malicious intentions from being able to get access to a gun in time in time in order to use that weapon for such evil intentions okay but also as as german lopez goes on it's like man we in in Thinking about the solution, you have to start from a premise acknowledging how many guns are already in circulation, right? So people point to Australia, they point to Scotland and some other countries that essentially, in response to mass shootings, just implemented either buyback program or over time made ownership illicit and were able to essentially eradicate the nation of guns and said, okay, you know, nobody can have one and we're going to be able to enforce that to a level that innocent people are not going to have a rational concern that criminals are going to have access to guns. And thus it's not going to be rational for them to it's it. We are going to make it safe for them not to have guns. Right. So Australia seems to have been able to do it. Well, Scotland was able to do it, but this is a matter of scale guys. Uh, we have 11 times as many people and sometimes like I guess like 60 times as much landmass as Australia to go on a gun, a gun confiscation program or to take 200 million guns off the street. I mean, I got to be honest, I just don't see it happening. I don't think that's something that's re- that's realistic. I do. I'm totally in favor of uh, of implementing buyback programs to incentivize people to voluntarily give up their guns. Right. Absolutely. I'm, I'm for the bullshit that we spend money on. If we wanted to don't dedicate a significant amount of budgetary funds to incentivize and buy back guns to reduce the amount of guns in circulation. I am totally in favor of that. Then you look at Scott at Scotland when they d- decided to out- outright ban handguns and fire personal firearms. You know how many guns they had to take off the streets? One hundred and sixty thousand. It's just not comparable. Like trying to implement this solution in America. I, I don't see it possible. So what is possible? This guy, Salvador Ramos, on his 18th birthday, went and purchased over-the-counter Essentially, with no friction and no barrier whatsoever, he went and purchased some pretty harmful guns, some stuff that could do some real damage. I mean, I think it's it, it, even a lot of conservatives and people who are far more pro-gun than I am are looking around and saying, wait a second, this is pretty ridiculous that someone whose society does not even uh, trust to drink, uh, legally drink or buy alcohol, is able to attain a weapon of this lethality. Uh, that's got to change, guys. We can't. We uh, You got to. For rifles that really don't have any utility beyond hunting or, you know, maybe you could call it personal protection, but I don't know. I don't I don't see much of a distinction between uh, a handgun 
and a an assault rifle for personal protection if there is an intruder in your home, for instance. I mean, man, I don't know. It seems like there there needs to be a distinction. So it seems like there's got to be, I mean, either a waiting period or an age limit or some sort of training and licensing program to go get your hands on a, on an assault rifle, right? I mean, some people make a valid point that, hey, it just sounds scarier. And in, in reality, there's not a big leap in lethality between a gun and a semi, uh, semi-automatic rifle. And I think, yeah, yeah it, it, the, the distinction between the two is some, sometimes exaggerated, but I don't know. There seems to be an odd and morbid habit of these AR-15s and assault rifles being used in these mass shootings, particularly with schools. You got to look at that. You can't ignore that. You can't just pretend that that doesn't exist, right? So there's, I think, implementing some rules and regulations, making it more difficult to legally purchase those types of guns, not making it impossible, but you got it. There needs to be some more friction in the process of getting it, I think, makes all the sense in the world. Now, the question is, how much of the problem is that going to solve? Or it could at least made it more difficult for this one individual to commit this crime. But man, there are a lot of crimes. California has these restrictions. This is something that the anti-gun people need to wrestle with, is that there are jurisdictions that have more restrictive gun laws, but they don't seem, they still seem to be quite violent zones, right? This is the state of California. This is Los Angeles. This is Chicago. In incredibly restricted gun laws, and they're not able to get the guns off the street. And that's a big problem. And this was an article that was tweeted out by Zaid Jelani, who's another great commentator on issue on all issues, but particularly those around gun violence, crime and criminality and criminal justice. And the Chicago police collect something like 10,000 illegal guns a year, and it barely puts a dent in the gun violence problem. Like It, it is just insane how many guns are floating out there and not just ones people were able to purchase legally. There is an entire industry. I mean, we uh, America, and this is a distinguishing feature we have a, an organized crime and that's not just the mafia that's not just goodfellas it's also these inner city gangs we have a gang culture and we have gangs operating in the united states to an extent far more significant than any uh, just about any other western country depending on whether you count mexico and some of the other south american countries or central american countries okay these are organizations that have entire apparatuses set up to access and circulate guns illegally and use them, once again, for malicious purposes. We can't ignore that. So if you think that this is just going to get solved by making it more difficult for people to to legally and voluntarily get access to a gun, it's only going to make a small dent. We've got to work on enforcement, enforcing the law and preventing bad actors and criminals from getting access to guns, both for one, the reason that they're going to use it, and two, once again, you have to look at whether or not it is rational. Is a person rational for wanting to have a gun for personal protection? So, as I said before, I'm not a gun person. I don't have a gun. There's a ton of people that I know in Southern California and Los Angeles who are never gun people either, never owned a gun, but have gotten a gun over the last two or three years in response, based once again, based on rational observations. They rationally observed the riots and the civil unrest in 2020. They rationally observed the in increase in crime, the the tears of the social fabric, and the greater threats to their safety in the city of Los Angeles over the last two years. And in response, they went and got a gun. That is not an invalid or irrational thing to do, right? So the better that we're able, the better that we're able to maintain social fabric and public safety overall, the less incentive there is for people to go and voluntarily purchase a gun. Because the best way to get guns off the street or, or to reduce American gun culture is for people to voluntarily voluntarily do it. It's what happened with cigarettes. And just to 
caveat as not a one to one metaphor. But cigarettes got solved not by outlawing cigarettes and not even by increasing the price. Uh, the cigarette problem and, and lung cancer problem got solved quite a bit or at least reduced significantly by everybody can but pe- people being convinced to voluntarily stop smoking cigarettes. That's what put the major dent in that issue. I know we want, you know, guns are a different subject because there's something that really kind of operates at the edge of law enforcement and, you know, the the kind of edge between illegal activity and illegal activity and activity that harms others. So it is a different topic. But the more that we can get people or create the conditions for them to voluntarily not want to go get guns, the better. So then what are the other factors? What are the other inputs beyond simply the amount of guns in circulation and people having access to guns, right? Because, yeah, America has the most guns. It's not even close, right? But if you look at some other countries, as I said before, they have fractional amounts of gun ownership. There's still other countries that have quite a few guns. Our neighbors to the North Canada, they have a lot of guns. They think they fluctuate between, like, I think the seventh and 13th most guns in the in the, uh, in the the world. But there's no shortage of guns in Canada. They have drastically less gun violence and drastically less mass shooters, school shootings are unheard of and yet in america we're on our 27th this year and it's only may so it can't just be guns right there's got to be something other there's something else going on michael tracy described it as cultural pathologies he mentions in bowling for columbine the seminal film about gun violence in america and advocating for gun control michael moore puzzles over why there's so many more shootings in the u.s versus canada which have comparable rates of gun ownership comparable is overstating it the u.s has about three to four times as high gun ownership, but Canada still has a lot. He concludes the issue isn't guns per se, but unique American cultural pathologies. Is this still an allowable theory? Unique American cultural pathologies. Why do we have so much violence, right? Why do we have so many people, as I said before, who wish to go into a school and murder innocent children? Okay, that's a question that we have to ask ourselves. It can't just be about God, fuck these politicians who, you know, who allow people to buy these firearms over the counter. Because here's the thing. Yeah, there's definitely a, a chance. There's a good chance that it may slow down or inhibit people from not being able to buy it legally. It sure as hell seems to there's, it, that it will not stop them all. It's not going to stop all the pucks from getting getting past the goalie on that. Lots of people are able who want to are this deliberate and want to get these guns illegally are able to. Okay, so why do they want to go and get them and man where do we even begin on trying to diagnose this problem but you look at these two individuals this week with salvador ramos and last week with peyton gendron and i mean these are just textbook people who seem to have fallen through the cracks you look at them you look at there's red flags all over the place these are you look at the face i saw some pictures of peyton gendron and you can look at the the snarl on his face and you're like this is a disturbed individual this is a hateful resentful person who's stewing in their own misery and looking to lash out everything about Salvador Ramos. He's cutting himself. He's acting in antisocial, strange ways. He's saying strange things to women and uh, with aggressive behavior at his workplace, completely a loner. These are not happy people. These are not people who have any sense of meaning, community, or are connected to society in any way, shape, or form. And this seems to be a more prevalent problem in the United States than it is other places. 
So Democratic Senator Chris Murphy went to the Senate floor in response to the Ramos shooting. He was trying to dismiss the notion or the discussion around mental health because it seems like on the one hand, people are saying, hey, it's not a gun problem. It's a mental health problem. This is not a gun issue. This is a mental health issue. And on the other side, you got people like Murphy who are being completely dismissive of that. So first off, I think the comment, the statement, this is not a, about guns, I think that in and of itself is pretty ridiculous. It's definitely about guns. It's just not just about guns. So Senator Murphy said, spare me the bullshit of mental illness. We're not an outlier on mental illness. We're an outlier on firearms. Um, Senator Murphy, with all due respect, spare me your bullshit. Imagine thinking that the United States is not an outlier on mental illness. This nation is drowning in existential angst, anxiety, depression, addiction, and it's sprouting up and it's manifesting itself in these ways. This is the manifestation of that. Beyond these mass shootings, do you know the notion of deaths of despair, people who are dying from substance abuse, from alcohol or drug abuse, from overdoses and from suicide. Those numbers have skyrocketed this century, in particular in the 2010s. You've got to see the graphs on this stuff. Recently, this country is becoming an incredibly unhappy country. And if you look to segment it, you can say, OK, at the top of the heap, people are more free than ever. People are living better lives than ever. But one thing that we've seen of modern America, in particular, the digital age, is that things skew high and things skew low. People at the bottom of society are really falling through the cracks, man. That's why we're seeing so much suicide. That's why we're seeing so much depression and anxiety over medication. And you can't ignore that this is manifesting itself in some way with these deranged individuals who become demons and turn to evil and participate in evil acts. I, trying to ignore that we have a problem of culture and the social fabric is also ridiculous. It's just as ridiculous as the gun advocates ignoring that, hey, the fact that we have so many guns is to a certain extent leading to some people to be able to commit acts of terror and absolute horror. So where can we look to that for, once again, more tangible solutions? I know I've been waxing a lot about, you know, who's blaming who and why I think certain people blaming others are wrong. OK, so tangibly, what can we do to solve this? Um more specifically, yes, I don't listen. Some people, some gun owners make the argument to me that there isn't that much of a distinction between handguns and these assault rifles that anything short of an automatic has the same degree of lethality. I don't know. It seems I, I see there's another argument trying. There isn't, once again, a morbid consistency to these mass shootings being done by assault rifles as opposed to handguns, although handguns do seem to be at play in other circumstances. I think we do need to take some steps. I'm I'm pro licensing. You need a license to drive a car. I don't see why you don't need a license to have a handgun uh, as you do in certain uh, certain places or some sort of licensing requirement system or monitoring system. Okay, beyond that, one thing that's been banded about are red flag laws that if someone, if a family member, acquaintance, or observer can identify that a per, that a person carries a particularly high degree of risk, that has shown signs that they wish to cause harm to others, but not indiscriminately, that that person can be kind of put on, a, a, a marked as a red flag and prevented from gun ownership under certain monitoring for a certain amount of time. These laws obviously need to be crafted very specifically and need to be adjudicated, like the state needs to be adjudicated, so that you're not impinging on people's rights and that you're not identifying people who do not pose a threat as posing a threat and 
preventing them from taking steps to defend themselves, right? But, you know, I think about, okay, where else in the American legal system do we have something similar? In terms of a temporary restraining order, you can get a temporary restraining order against someone. We, you, you don't, it does not require that a person be found uh, guilty by a jury of their peers, that there is a system in place for people to make claims as to immediate threats against them and have the court step in to prevent the, uh, other people who do pose a threat from engaging in certain behavior they'd otherwise be able to engage. So, okay, are there parallels there that we can make use of? Um, Can we implement a system similar to the TRO system, the temporary restraining orders for, you know, for red flag laws so that people who because, guys, you're looking at these people. I mean, based on one, the the Gendron kids, Internet behavior and just it seems about how he acts and everyone saw the red flags with Ramos. I mean, these are people who should have been reported. And while they may have not done anything that would have warranted them being arrested or detained, put on some sort of list that would have prevented them from from accessing guns that would have legally prevented them from obtaining these guns things that are more functional as to school shootings like security guards to school security this is a tough one man because it makes it makes sense in theory well here, here, let me take a step back it's terrible to think we might need that the cost benefit might work out that it would make more sense for there for us to need full-blown security at elementary schools, okay, to know that we live in that type of society. A lot of people try to equate us to Israel, where Israel has all the security around schools and public shopping centers and malls and things like that. Well, yeah, Israel's a five a country of six million people surrounded by 300 million people and a number of hostile sovereign nations that want it dead and wiped off the map and has experienced decades of terrorism due to those factors. America does not have the same set of conditions with its external, its neighbors and external enemies surrounding it, right? The thought that our children would have to be subjected to that type of to that type of environment, despite the simply based on internal actors, on internal bad guys, as opposed to foreign uh, external bad guys. I mean, that's kind of a sickening and sobering thought. Right. But OK, it, it, from a purely tangible perspective, is the mitigation of harm worth it? Um, f- some studies seem to show that a lot of the schools that do have armed guards and securities, it, it hasn't really prevented a lot of violence. And it's tough to look at that because you're like, wait a second, do they have more security in the first place because they're more dangerous neighborhoods in the first place? And from a couple studies that I've looked at, even controlling for that, it doesn't seem to have solved the problem um, yesterday. And this is something that we're still trying to see, figure out the facts on the facts on around the Ramos shooting is apparently Ramos encountered. There was a guard at the school. Ramos encountered that guard. And I, I keep on hearing various rumors thrown about about to what happened, that Ramos took out the guard, that Ramos had body armor, the guard shot him, the, the guard shot Ramos, the body armor protected him and he outgunned the security guard. I don't know. There's a lot of strange, strange factors floating around about that one. We're going to have to see, gather more facts on that one. But um, listen, I, I how, whatever solves the problem I'm in favor of, I think uh, to, to sit around and kind of lambast people for not wanting security guards at their schools, I think is off. Like you should not criticize parents for not wanting their kids to have to be in an environment that has this aura of danger hovering over it at all times. Um, and so I, I think some people who are pro gun or uh, gun advocates really are off base when they you know try to criticize people who don't who, who are off put by that solution. Counterpoint being, listen, if it works, it works, and if there's a way if we can uh, 
if we can equip schools with security and protection that would prevent these types of things from happening, that would be a net plus. It needs to be continually studied. And so what's the assessment there? I don't know. It, it's tough. We've got 27 of these school shootings already by by May. It We might need a bigger program. We might need a nationwide program for school security. The states might need to attack this for school security at a higher level. It's something that we need to look into. In the case of mental health, it's both. It's not just mental health because mental health is something that is diagnosable and treatable, right? It's about someone who's already become miserable or pathological or antisocial and has problems and needs to get treated. It's also about preventing people from getting to that place in the first place. And sometimes that's not present, preventable um, in a lot of cases in terms of uh, chemical imbalances and things of that nature. But once again, you got to look at the trajectory. We seem to be having more of these incidents than we used to have, right? So it's not all of us. There's more people being born genetically with these chemical chemical imbalances. No, there 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 are social inputs that go into why we are seeing more people at the bottom rungs of society who wish to do harm to others. And you need to start looking at what are the other common threads. What are the other common threads going through these all these mass shootings and school shootings? A lot of them uh, are a breakdown in the nuclear family. A lot of these shooters had no father figure in their life. Ramos yesterday, the Parkland shooter. You can see, I think there was a study done by the Heritage Foundation, about 75% of school shooters had either a broken family or simply did not have a father. I know it's not possible. I know that, you know, the the accepting alternative modalities of family, that there's going, that not every marriage is going to work out and we're not going to be able to live in this leave it to beaver, nuclear family, mom, dad, housewife, you know, two and a half kids in a white picket fence society. But you cannot deny that that is at its core, a healthier modality for society to operate. The more widespread that is, the less we're going to have these people fall through the cracks and turn to this type of behavior. So yeah, I think we need to reevaluate how we're looking at those values and to stop demonizing these values like the nuclear family just because they were traditional and just because some people think that they're outdated. Another interesting one that people bring up a lot is video games, in particular because you know, some of these killers, Ramos yesterday, are very into these first-person shooter Call of Duty video games. This is another tough one because you look at it, the prevalence of these video games expanded exponentially in the 90s and 2000s while gun violence was going down. Right, the murder rate in American the murder rate in America overall plummeted in the 90s and the 2000s. Just there was no video games in the 60s, no video games in the 70s, not much in the 80s, and definitely nothing with multiplayer shooting in the 80s. So as these as these games started to sprout up, you also they coincided with a drop in the murder rate. However, in specific instances, in selective instances, they do seem to have been a motivating factor. So. It seems to be a broader issue of kids who have no meaning, who aren't socialized, getting sucked into these digital these digital universes and never coming out and being subject to lots of exposed to lots of toxic stuff that goes not just for video games that goes for, you know, not creating essentially not creating human connection and learning how to you know operate and connect with others because you're, you're they're so focused on the digital sphere um, to the types of pressures and the bullying that goes on with kids being able to communicate through digital means in everybody's life, everybody having a public persona. I mean, God, it's got to be really, it is it is a fraught and, and difficult environment for children and for raising children. But that's another, that's another avenue we need to look into. And like, all right, we are producing a lot more unhealthy citizens. Why are we doing so? We need to be, we, we need to give people the tools and the knowledge to help guide, you know, both children and parents to process the digital sphere and operate in the digital world more healthfully. 
So in some people, when I posted a lot of this stuff on my Instagram, a lot of people thought, you know, they, I, I understand some of them thought that I was giving a cop out and throwing my hands up and saying, hey, there's just, you know, because these gun laws aren't going to solve everything, that means we shouldn't do anything. And no, that is not what I'm saying. In fact, I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying because this is a multi-pronged problem, it requires a multi-pronged solution. And that simply in the response of just lambasting and directing all our hate and outrage as to those who believe, you know, who believe many in good faith in the right to bear arms and gun ownership, then we're missing the mark. And that, yes, that is one, some common sense gun laws and in creating some more restrictions and requirements around gun ownership and access legally to guns is one piece of a multi-pronged solution. And that if we think that's going to solve all our problems and that, you know, this, that, that we're going to be able to really move the ball forward just by defeating our enemies on the political battlefield of gun control. I mean, that, that's a fallacy. That's off. It needs to be Law enforcement focused on illegal guns so law-abiding citizens feel more comfortable and are not inspired to go and get guns as many people have been over the last three years. It is being able to identify people who are showing disturbing, threatening behavior and either one, if it does rise to the level that they need to be incarcerated or detained to find, you know, to, to make sure to be able to do that or to put them on a list where otherwise, if they would be able to purchase a gun, they are not able to purchase a gun. We seem to be having an epidemic and misery and, and despair, not just for people who go ahead and take it out on others, but overall, I mean, these are things we have to stay abreast of as the social fabric phrase. How do we build back the social fabric? How do we look at what the causality is, not just for people who go in and commit mass murder, but also people who are dying from drug and alcohol addiction, dying, uh, uh, committing suicide. These things do have some common threads, right? And we, we need to be able to address those. Does the cost benefit work out where we need to implement more security nationwide or statewide at elementary schools? Um, hey, I don't want to believe that we are under the same circumstances as Israel, but if the threat is that great, then maybe we need a solution that matches it. Are these things creating safer schools? Are they going to prevent? Do we need a national project to securitize schools? I hope we don't, but it needs to be looked into. I hope that people don't think I'm callous because I'm trying to direct the conversation in a more practical manner. I understand the sight of these innocent children being shot dead two days before they were supposed to be let out for summer break. It is heart-wrenching. It is disgusting. Uh, there's not really words to describe how horrible these things are. And I understand why that sparks a lot of people's emotions. However, we can't ignore that when these things happen, a conversation starts. And this conversation needs to be healthier. It can't just be, uh, once again, I go back to, I see a ton of outrage and hatred and so little of it is directed towards the person who actually committed the crime. So much of it is directed towards fellow citizens and people yelling at each other, yelling into a void. So I think it is absolute. I think it is a worthy cause, a worthy exercise to try to make this a healthier and more well-rounded conversation. And hopefully that will start driving us to some solutions. Um, one more topic as relates specifically to the Peyton Gendron murder. This was outright, you know, there, there are some circumstances where they try to impute white supremacy to the causality of the murder. There's no question this murder was racially motivated. He says that he specifically targeted people because of the color of their skin. So what can I say? That's a difficult topic. Uh, I hope it, I did it justice. I'm, I'm recording this on somewhat short notice. I feel like it was a topic that needed to be addressed. I tried to talk about it on social media. I imagine that a number of people did appreciate my my attempt to try to thread the needle on a difficult issue. I'm sure a lot of other people think I'm talking nonsense and I'm full of shit and I'm either one, ignorant, or two, trying to evade what I know to be the truth. 
Um, I don't know. Give me your input. Um, do you have ideas on this, both can, both in terms of tangible ideas on how to solve this, or am I screwing up on the interpretation of it? I, am I actually hurting the discourse as opposed to helping it? I hope I'm helping it. Um, and I definitely think that where this goes in terms of just, like I said before, all this anger and hatred for some reason not directed towards the killers and directed towards your fellow Americans, I got to be honest, I don't think that's right. I don't think this is healthy. I don't think this is helping things. Um, so. So let me know your input um, on this topic. I do not proclaim to have even close to all the answers. So anyone who's got better ideas, please, 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 I encourage you to throw them out there. Try to contribute. If I'm not the one who's making the discourse more he more healthy, hopefully you can. I know that a lot of people are gun shy about talking about issues this controversial, but we can't be afraid of this stuff, guys. This is why our conversations have veered so far off course, because people, informed people of good faith, don't want to, they, they don't want the headaches. They don't want the trouble of discussing these issues. So I do encourage people to step up and discuss these in a good faith manner, and we, we can try to process them and weave through these issues together. So shifting to a guy who does have answers to problems, not this problem specifically, but a lot of related ones, nobody is more informed than Michael Schellenberger. If you are looking for tangible, constructive solutions to the problems that are plaguing California in terms of homelessness, crime, addiction, poverty, inequality, and the decline in quality of life that we are experiencing, nobody has taken a more clinical approach than Mike Schellenberger. We get into all, we get into these problems and his proposed solutions and his campaign for governor coming up in just a moment. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Matt Belinsky, and this is The Prevailing Narrative. I'm here today with activist, author, and candidate for governor of California running as an independent Mike Schellenberger. As a youth, Mike was a self-proclaimed 90s radical, exploring the world of advocacy and public policy, typically focusing on progressive causes such as criminal justice, addiction, poverty, and homelessness. Then Mike seemed to reach the public consciousness more broadly in the 2010s as a contrarian voice on environmentalism, advocating for nuclear energy in particular. Over the last few years, Mike has expanded his public presence, becoming a loud but perhaps the most constructive agitator, highlighting the misgovernance in the state of California. His best-selling book, San Francisco, documents how misguided progressivism has led to exploding crime, addiction, inequality, and waste in the state. Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So from your back background, you clearly have a wide variety of interests. What led you to turn your focus recently towards progressive mismanagement in California? Well, I've actually been, you know, I've it, California is, is new since 2018. I actually ran for governor in 2018. I didn't have any support, uh, so it didn't really go anywhere and I didn't really do much campaigning. Mm -hmm. But at the time, I was trying to save our last nuclear plant, which is called Diablo Canyon. And I realized if I was enough for governor, then I needed to understand what else was going on in the state. At the time was sort of this big movement to add more housing through something called the Yimby movement, the uh, yes in our in my backyard. And so I got really into housing and the need for more housing. And then I just started looking, I just kept peeling the onion and looking at more and more of our problems in California. <laughs> and when you start uh, peeling that onion, it's just amazing how much there is there. And so I wrote a report called California in Danger. And then that was 2018. I actually wrote an article called uh, Number One in Poverty. California isn't the most progressive state. It's the most racist one that described California as Elysium uh, or as sort of, did you ever see the movie Elysium where the, you know, all the rich people go up to the satellite and then like Matt Damon is on earth being irradiated and 
haven't seen that one, but it seems to the the way I put it is I, I can just recall a couple times walking through this progressive utopian wonderland in Venice, California, where you've got yoga studios, meditation studios, and like three thousand dollar crystal shops, and you're kind of walking over homeless people bleeding pus in the street in order yeah. to get to them on Rose Avenue. So I yeah. imagine that's a lot of parallels between that and Elysium. Yeah, exactly. And so, so uh, you, I, I remember because that was when I first noticed you. You seem to be very much focused on the nuclear energy issue. You ran for governor, and then all of a sudden, over the next couple of years, I saw you commenting far more broadly on on topics related to California. So that was kind of the vector you ran, kind of based on uh, focused on one single issue, and then in in trying to expand your uh, viability for governor for some sort of position, you started taking a look, and you're like, oh my god, you look underneath the hood here, and it's a it's a disaster. Yeah, that's right. And of course, there's other things going on. I then so I wrote this one piece that I, I sort of I, I kind of like a lot of people. I thought, well, homelessness is a problem of housing. It's in the name. Mm-hmm. You know, at the same time, I always knew that everybody was on drugs and mentally ill because I just I lived in San Francisco. I lived in the Mission District. I worked right across the street from an open drug scene. That was a heroin scene in the late 1990s. And there was always it always struck me like homelessness advocacy always struck me as a little off, like Mm -hmm. wasn't kind of it didn't seem progressive in some if in some way I couldn't quite put my finger on. And then, you know, so then fast forward, I get to 2019. uh, The race is obviously over. I'm back to nuclear advocacy. I'm in the Netherlands. I'm about to I'm testifying I'm meeting with a member of parliament who brought me to the Netherlands because she was a climate, she was working on climate change and everybody was all renewables focused. And so she just Googled around and found, found me. So I she brought me to Netherlands and then in the car ride back from Delft to Amsterdam, she goes, you know, you might be interested in my husband. He works on drug policy. And I was like, yeah, like what? I was like, and she said, I think drug policy and homelessness. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, what is as like, have you ever been to San Francisco? And these are very cosmopolitan people. So they were like, of course, you know, and I was like, what is going on in San Francisco? And he just goes, look, mate, you know, it's you got to have carrots and sticks when dealing with a difficult population like the homeless. You got to have some reward for good behavior and some consequence for bad behavior. And I was just like, right, of course. And then. But then it kind of went asleep for a little bit. And then I wrote a column for Forbes in the fall of 2019, where I said I basically called for a state of emergency by the governor to take action on homelessness. And then I had a bunch of people that were like, hey, dude, this is not just about housing. It's also about drugs and mental illness. And so then I wrote a follow up column. And at that point, my Forbes editors were like, you can't write any more columns on on you're supposed to be an energy columnist. And so Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, for me to get standing on this issue, I need to write a book. And so I was working on a book about the environment that came out in 2020 called Apocalypse Never. It became a bestseller. When you write a bestseller, you got to write a follow-up book. That's kind of the deal. Mm -hmm. And so it was obvious to me that that book would be San Francisco. And and so that's the, well, it's there. That's San San Francisco. (laughs) Uh, that's the book I ended up doing, and that ends up being about crime, drugs, and homelessness. And so pretty much all the main issues that inform quality of life that has clearly been on the descent in California, which has sparked the first uh, net outflow and migration from the state of California in recorded history two years in a row, just by happenstance, the last two years. Um, and so the message 
one of the messages I always try to impart to my audience who's very focused on these issues is that these problems, these things you see around them, what I, for instance, that what I just described in Venice with, you know, the homeless popula- population there, or all of a sudden where um, you, people are afraid to wear their watches out to lunch and all these smash and grab robberies and, and stick ups right. during the day, is that these things don't just happen as some chaotic mixture of, of stimuli. These are the inevitable results of certain policies implemented by politicians and those in power. And that's what you've been... Uh, You've done an amazing job in explaining that, in particular, uh, as to the homeless policy uh, and the way you term it is housing first versus shelter first housing earned, is that California politicians for in recent years, at least, have been so focused on housing first that literally as long as we can build housing, that's going to solve the the homeless problem because all the people on the street just need a place to live. Not, leaving aside from the fact that they are absolutely terrible at actually building this housing and, and never seem to build the housing that we continue to fund. But if you could explain the the functional failures of the policies of housing and the, the approach of housing first that has led to our current conditions. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you know, so the first thing is if you walk around San Francisco, I just was there a few hours ago. Um there's a lot of people on the sidewalks. Some are intense. Some are wrapped in blankets. Many are dirty. They appear to be sick. They, they sometimes appear to be sort of sleeping or half awake. They might be slumped over. Basically, everybody's on drugs. They're mm-hmm. mostly smoking methamphetamine and fentanyl. So the first thing you realize is th- this word homeless is describing drug users. In other words, there's all sorts of variety and diversity among the people on the street. Some are white, some are black, Latino, Asians. Some appear to be to come from money. Some appear to be poor. Some people appear to be mentally ill. Some people just appear to be high. And it turns out the more you learn, some people actually have homes. <laughs> some people have apartments nearby. Some people are from out of town. Some people are local, but they all have one thing in common, which is that they're all on drugs. And so what you realize is that what's really going on is that it's an open drug scene. That's the right word for what we, what we have in San Francisco, what we have at People's Park in Berkeley, what we have next to many highways, what Skid Row in Los Angeles is which you have in downtown Sacramento. So we call homeless encampments what Europeans call open drug scenes. And open drug scenes are open-air drug markets where the drug users, the buyers, are so either sick with addiction and or wanting to party with each other and also in just so such a hurry to use their drugs that they end up using the drugs right where the open-air drug market is. And that forms an open-air drug scene. And traditionally, you would have them, and this is true all over the world, near train stations, near bus depots. The one that I was near in the the late 1990s, sorry, early early to mid-1990s, was around 16th Street BART stop in San Francisco, and it was a heroin scene. So that's the right way to think about it, because the word homelessness, it turns out, is a propaganda word that was used by the radical left to first kind of make the street addicts be more sympathetic, but also as a way to advocate for more subsidized housing. Now there is a role for subsidized housing, but before you get to that, you just first have to have some clarity about what we're dealing with here, which is essentially an addiction problem and uh, and a drug dealing problem. Mm-hmm. And so when you 
you know, when I was in the Netherlands and I ended up going back and shadowing this this person who was a social worker, he's actually a nurse, and saw what they did and learned about more what they did, what you discover is that all these cities, Amsterdam, Lisbon, Frankfurt, Vienna, Zurich, had open drug scenes and they shut them down through a combination of police and social workers. They'd offer people methadone. Today we have Suboxone, which is better. Or do you offer them clean needles? You might offer them a place to stay, but you did not let people stay outside in the open drug scenes. You did not allow the open air drug dealing. So just for listeners who are in a hurry and you want to cut to the chase, that's what I'm proposing is that we just do what the Europeans did, shut down the open air drug scene, require people, you know, I mean, make shelter available. People sometimes say to me, they say, are you going to make people stay in shelter? Well, no, I'm not going to make anybody stay in shelter. You could go stay with your friends and family that you've probably uh, alienated in your addiction, or you can move somewhere else, or you can go camp in a legal camping place, but you can't camp there on the sidewalk next to the BART train or next to the subway, because that's public space and it's not safe Mm -hmm. for you. It's not safe for anybody else. And so one of the points that you make is that we in the U.S. seem to have an aversion, or at least the progressives in California have an aversion to any sort of police presence or involvement or law enforcement involvement in this whatsoever. And then in Europe, and and this is something that that you've described uh, in your appearances on Joe Rogan, is that the progressives always want to look to the model or reference the model of Europe because it's always had more libertine drug laws and views towards drug use. However, they're distorting the actual policies there because they're only taking one piece of it. They're only taking the carrot and not the stick piece in that, listen, uh, in that a combination of law enforcement and social works uh, uh, is they don't have any aversion to that. And here, the uh, the homeless advocates and the progressive groups, any involvement of law enforcement or notion that there should be the threat or potential consequence of incarceration is just so anathema to them. They don't include that. And that's what continues to perpetuate the problem. You got it. You said it. You said it beautifully. You said, thank it you, my friend. <laughs> um, so but specifically in terms of housing first, where are we failing specifically? Because this is something that drag that draws back to Gavin Newsom's career. And he, he Gavin Newsom continues in every which way, shape or form to deflect from any blame from any problem going on in California. Right. Um, in this one in particular, well, you could say that the homeless population was growing quite a bit before he took office in 2019 after his win in 2018. His policies have been consistent, even as mayor of San Francisco, where he he essentially focused on building single unit single unit housing for all homeless and that essentially no solution could impede that or there couldn't be any other incremental solution until that was that was in place. Right. Could maybe describe a a little bit about his history as to faulty uh, housing policy for the homeless. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it really starts in the late 90s when he gets so he gets appointed, you know, his dad worked for the Getty Oil Fortune and was very well connected in California politics. His father was the main fundraiser for Jerry Brown, who was the governor before for Gavin Newsom. His aunt is Nancy Pelosi. So the Getty, Brown, Pelosi families are all very a single large uh, mafia of families, so no to doubt. speak. And so Gavin gets appointed to this kind of police role and then he gets on the board of supervisors and then he wants to run for mayor and he wants to address homelessness which is a big issue already in the late 90s early 2000s he says i'm gonna um reduce general assistance cash welfare for people because it's encouraging homelessness people are coming to san francisco to be homeless 
And instead, we're going to care for people. The care will be what we call permanent supportive housing or housing first housing. Mm-hmm. So that's basically what happened. They did they did end up restoring a bunch of the cash welfare later if you just if you could show that you were working at a nonprofit, for example. But the the standards have just diluted over time. So now we see you know people report being, you know, getting the roughly seven hundred dollar cash welfare per month uh payment without doing much of anything and then just living on the street. If you mm-hmm. accept a room in a what's called a single resident occupancy hotel which is these old dilapidated working class hotels in the Tenderloin district and South of market. If you accepted that, then you would, um, you would get a lower amount of cash. So, I mean, but the basic picture is that they're giving away free housing without conditions. And this is a bad idea for a lot of different reasons. But one of which is that we know that if you're an addict, that one way that that really you have to hit bottom before you'll quit. And so the worst thing to do is to enable addiction. And this is a very deeply painful thing for family members. I have three friends from high school that became homeless drug addicts. Two are dead. I watched uh, two of the three basically get cut off from their family because they were stealing, lying, borrowing, cheating from them to support their drug habit. And then you, if you go and then become homeless, then you're suddenly a problem of the whole society and you're breaking laws, you're stealing, you're doing, you're having behavioral disorders in order to maintain your addiction. To then just go give that person a house is a problem because then it, it means that they then can continue to use drugs without consequence, mm-hmm. destroying themselves, ripping off taxpayers at this point, since it's not in the taxpayer's interest to subsidize illness. What we know works is for housing to be conditional and they call it contingency management. So if you pass a drug test, this was done in famous studies in Alabama and Birmingham. If you pass a drug test, you get your own room or your own apartment unit. If you fail the drug test, then you go back to congregate shelter where people are all together in a big space. People don't like it as much, but it should be safe and clean. But nonetheless, the basic view that I have, and I think most experts that are, are familiar with addiction is everybody should have a right to basic shelter, but you don't get your own apartment unless you're on a subsidized apartment, unless you, unless you earn it. So that's what I mean by the housing earned. So Gavin has just been, you know, dogmatically embraced this housing first model, which just says we got to just give people without conditions, their own hotel room without, or their own apartment unit without requiring sobriety or abstinence, or frankly, anything, you know, including just maintaining the room and not destroying it. And, and it's just, it comes, it's not, it's terrible. It doesn't come out of any addiction research. It just comes out of a political ideology, which you might call victim ideology, which is the idea that people that we declare to be victims, everything should be given and nothing required of them. So that's basically how we get from there to, from the, from 20 years ago to now, that policy becomes statewide in part because of Gavin Newsom championing it. And then every sort of new iteration of new housing and what we saw in COVID was basically billions spent just buying old hotels and converting them and then, and then giving them over to homeless addicts. And so part of this is what you've referred to as the homeless industrial complex that when, cause right, 
you pass a tax, uh, they, they pass it, pass a tax increase or a referendum and we fund the citizens of the state or a city. Um, in Los Angeles, there was a measure called Triple H was a billion dollars towards the homelessness problem. Citizens contribute tax dollars. Those tax dollars are supposedly supposed to go towards solving this issue, but they continue not to solve it. So, right, those tax do- those dollars have to go somewhere. And people seem to uh, overlook that there's an entire apparatus in place from advocacy groups to 501c3s to consultants and whatnot that they, as the cascade of dollars falls down or even even developers who are supposed to be building this housing and these structures right you have this cascade of money and a bunch of people are grabbing the dollars as it's coming down and to to continue to actually modify the policies towards the most effective ones some of those some of that money shifts from the the members of that apparatus somewhere else it seems like gavin newsom is unwilling uh and these people at continuing to advocate for a an approach that will continue to line their pockets gavin newsom is unwilling to to tell them no say say that the party is over that seems to be the case yeah that's right it's and I mean, there's a financial benefit to to gavin and the democrats because they get money kicked back to them from the developers from the homeless industrial complex that that is taxpayer money that they've given away so it's a bit of a scam as you mm-hmm. as you've sort of described um where where taxpayers who think we're solving homelessness it actually goes to make the problem worse by creating these um uh these uh perverse incentives for homelessness the developers then give money back in the form of campaign contributions to the same politicians who then go sell the same solutions. So that is, yeah, that's basically what's occurred. And a point that you harped on yesterday in your Substack piece about Gavin Newsom kind of acknowledging that he's ill-equipped, he's not equipped to solve these problems, is because his he is part of a political system that is built by all these organizations, and he, he's what the machine spits out, right? So for him to acknowledge, that's why he continues to dis, just ignore the you know dismiss the notion that there's any problem. Um, the the donor groups and the advocacy groups that support him have a stake in, in not admitting that they're wrong. So if the governor admits something was wrong he's essentially acknowledging that his supporters have been a failure and admitting failure and so can you explain beyond just the homeless homelessness issue how gavin newsom is essentially indulging or having to kind of stay on code with his, the groups that support him and put him in power is harming the governance of the state yeah well you did such a good job of explaining it what more <laughs> can i add you've done it perfectly thank you um, thank you <laughs> Uh, just your your view on that and how, you know, I guess how you've noticed that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think what's interesting. So I, I wrote this piece tomorrow called, I mean, sorry, this piece yesterday, I think called something like why Gavin Newsom can't govern or something like that. But I basically observe that uh, across all these issues, so we're having a crisis of governance on a bunch of different things at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have, we don't have enough housing. We don't have enough fresh water during a time of drought. And, and indeed, fresh water is something that we can create uh, and we don't have enough electricity. So we have blackouts and then you have we have a homelessness crisis and we have a increasing crime and we have terrible schools <laughs> and it's all getting worse. Like each and not that's not just like my opinion, like the objective measurements on each of these show that we're in this crisis situation. And it's baffling on the one hand to people like Gavin, because they're kind of like, look, I've done everything the experts told me to do. And now we're Mm. in this crisis. So they kind of look around and they go, who can I blame? And so Gavin tends to either blame the well, he'll blame various people. He tends to blame counties, 
since, of course, there's a statewide governance system that he's in charge of and there's counties. So he blames them. He also blames climate change, which is ridiculous for everything. Yeah, for everything. There is climate change, but we've known about climate change and he's just failed to prepare for it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he also then with the housing, he blamed NIMBYs, not in my backyard activists. Now, in the latter, it's sort of interesting because that gets you into tricky territory because those are voters. So in general, he's been elected with the support of NIMBY voters, not my backyard voters. Yeah. But that was the excuse he gave to the San Francisco Chronicle, which wants to see more housing for home because they think housing is the reason that people are on the street, not addiction. So that was interesting. And I just point out, yeah, I mean, there's a way in which now NIMBYs are just kind of a final bit of resistance to just putting more shelters everywhere. I mean, there is a way in which they're just sort of farming addicts and mentally ill people. You know, they're trying to they're bringing them here. They're trying to put they're using taxpayer money to put them up and just trying to expand as much housing and shelter for homeless people. And there's some resistance now, quite understandably, from people that know that if you introduce more of that homeless housing in their neighborhood, the chances are low that it won't turn into an open drug scene. Mm -hmm. That's part of the issue is that if you're not going to enforce any abstinence or sobriety in the homeless shelters or the homeless housing you end up with this open drug scene around those facilities and neighbors in San Francisco and the rest of California have quite understandably not wanted that. And another you, you mentioned and some of Gavin's deflection is the, the city versus county versus state levels. Listen, California is just a humongous territory with a humongous governmental and, and municipal apparatus. Um, and another place where you've kind of part of your platform acknowledges where those distinctions are, are inhibiting solutions is in terms of mental health. And here's something that I don't think a lot of people know um, when they continue to to wax uh, poetically about, you know, donut, dedicating more funds towards mental health treatment. California spends the most on mental health per capita in the nation, yet we get essentially the worst results. So your platform seems to aim towards centralizing that at the state level because you believe that fractionalizing it at the county level is is inefficient and is indulging and worsening the problem. That's right. And so, I mean, the first reason that you should have one centralized psychiatric and addiction care system at the state level, which I'm calling CalPsych, is because it means you only have one government agency as opposed to 58. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I should have made this argument earlier in my campaign because I realized what a good, because I get all my conservative, my conservative and libertarian friends, they go, it sounds like you're proposing this big expansion of government. And I'm like, I'm actually proposing to eliminate 57 government agencies. Yeah. I mean, imagine 57 government agencies all doing the same administrative work. It's a complete colossal waste of money. I mean, it's shocking actually, when you really think about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it maybe it made sense back in the 19th century when we didn't have this yep. big psychiatric and addiction care problem. But in this case, it's just bonkers. And by the way, it's been advocated for by plenty of center-right people over the decades. It wasn't, I've had a hard time remembering where I stole the idea from, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't my idea. <laughs> um, and that it's- But either from- way, a centralized state level, uh, a state level organization is still a contraction of overall government yes. from the fragmented county system. That's right. That's right. But the number, so that's the first is that, so the number one advantage is efficiency of healthcare delivery. So in this particular mental illness slash substance use disorder, 
it's very important that people getting going to rehab either to you know detox or if they're going to a 90 day or even 180 day program that they get the heck out of the open drug scene in the cities i would love to shut down the open air drug scenes within like my first 30 days in office it's going to be hard to do that for a variety of reasons so but you can you know like if someone overdoses on drugs or they're arrested in san francisco there's no reason they need to be treated in san francisco it might be much better for them it would be much better for them to be treated somewhere where they're not daily exposed to people selling their drug of choice so that's much more likely to be in the country. I mean, we often do mental, I mean, there's a whole long tradition of doing mental illness and rehab in more country settings rather than city settings, but certainly, you know, into other parts of California that allows us to have facilities where the rent is cheaper, where the land is cheaper, where the labor is cheaper. It also means that if some, like, you know, if all the slots are filled up in Eureka, and there's openings in Riverside, you can move people around pretty easily. Mm -hmm. and, um, and if they're from different parts of the state, they can be closer to friends and family, it'd be easier to reaffiliate them. So there's just a whole bunch of reasons why it makes sense to do this at a statewide level. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. As to the particulars of our, our current addiction problem right now and seeing that the just massive spike in deaths from, from drug overdoses and uses over the first two decades of the 21st century, even beyond California, there seems to be something different in the water. Right. Meaning the drugs that are being abused now are uniquely dangerous, um, both the the new version of meth of whatever has been going on yeah. in this this century with, with methamphetamines and fentanyl. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what you've discovered there in terms of wh why the the issue of addiction is becoming so much um, uh, in both volume and intensity is becoming worse because of the nature of the drugs themselves? Sure. And this gets to another motivation I had for writing San Francisco, because, of course, you know, whenever you're doing something big, you always have multiple motivations. But one of my motivations was in 2017, I and many other people noticed that the total drug overdose and poisoning deaths in the United States had reached 70,000. Mm -hmm. Something about that number that had gathered a lot of headlines. And we all saw that. And I saw it and I was like, eek. And I looked back and the year that I had really stopped working, because see, the other issue is that I had done work on drug decriminalization in the late 1990s for George Soros's foundation. This has become mm -hmm. a source of significant contention on social media. But I did do work for the Soros Foundation in the late 1990s on drug decriminalization and harm reduction. But then I basically stopped in the year 2000 to focus on environmental issues but when I got out of that work in the year 2000, 17,000 people were dying annually of drug overdose and, and poisoning deaths. My understanding was that we were trying to get people not to go to prison, but to go to rehab. So I get to 2017, I look at those overdose deaths and I was like, what happened? You know, why is rehab not happening? Why is there no treatment on demand or is there? And I knew that, obviously, I mean, because everybody knows, because it's been heavily publicized, that we'd had a big opioid epidemic. And the basic contours of that story, most people know, we overprescribed prescription opioids. We allowed too many prescriptions. The culture, people demanded more opioids. 
The doctors promoted more opioids. It had a little bit to do with the fact that we're such a hyper-capitalist society. It also had to do with the fact that the government didn't regulate it. It also had to do with the fact that we're very entitled and people felt entitled to opioids. And whereas in Netherlands, there's much more of a, they kind of kept more of a stigma and a hard line on it. So nonetheless, you get Mm -hmm. this opioid crisis. Um, Obama uh, tightens up the prescription regulations around 2010. A lot of people then switch to heroin. So you get a much bigger heroin. You always had heroin. You've had heroin here for whatever, you know, 100 years almost. Sure. Um, but heroin becomes much cheaper. The Mexicans start bringing in heroin that they start delivering by car. They adopt a more nonviolent approach, interestingly enough. This is all detailed in Sam Quinones's, um Dreamland. A lot, a lot of heroin comes in. And that starts happening between 2010 and 2020. So you get this big increase in overdose deaths. The other thing is that, you know, it's it's not it's hard to overdose on heroin alone. A lot of those deaths were occurring with a mixture of alcohol and heroin or benzodiazepines and heroin. Benzodiazepines are anti-anxiety meds like Xanax. Then you also had a second drug epidemic that was just creeping along the whole time, which, of course, was methamphetamine made famous by Breaking Bad. So you had both these drug epidemics happening, and then you get to today where we have 105,000 drug overdose and poisoning deaths over the last 12 God. months. And that is then, the big increase then is from fentanyl. And fentanyl is a synthetic opioid. So there's been a bunch of debate, but basically the consensus view, which I agree with, is that fentanyl and methamphetamine are much more serious drugs than heroin and the earlier meth or even then the cocaine, but we are now in a second kind of methamphetamine. You know, on the street, you hear mixed things about the new meth. Some people complain it's too weak. Other people complain that it makes them psychotic. It does appear to be increasing paranoid psychosis. Everybody, I'm like, not everybody, a large percentage of people I interview on the street who are smoking meth are psychotic when I interview them and they come in and out of psychosis. So that's the basic contour of this. But these big spikes in deaths were heavily driven by fentanyl. And I say that, though, because I, I with some caution, because I do think sometimes there's been a tendency from some really pro legalization people to sort of ascribe everything to fentanyl and to ignore the fact that we had 70,000 that we rose from 17 to 17, 70,000 deaths between 2017. And they're doing that to make the case for basically legalizing heroin as so people would use as an alternative fentanyl. And that, I don't think that that's wise or in any way would put an end to the, the deaths or the addictions. So the role of fentanyl is kind of peculiar because on the one hand, yes, it's more available and you have some people that are deliberately and voluntarily and knowingly using fentanyl. But then you have this dynamic of so many of essentially contaminated cocaine or other drugs that are laced with fentanyl. And I sit here scratching my head thinking, well, wait a second. Is this some grand conspiracy and there's somebody trying to contaminate uh, out of malicious motives and contaminate the drug supply and kill people? Is this something that's just going on that it's like uh, at Subway when one ingredient from the assembly line accidentally gets in the uh, into another sandwich it wasn't meant for. Yeah. How is how and why is this fentanyl getting into uh, non-fentanyl drug supplies and, and killing people who don't know they're taking fentanyl? Yeah. So just that's an easy one. I mean, all the evidence is that it's accidentally contaminating the other drugs mm. and there's no evidence of a conspiracy to kill users. 
um, lots and lots of evidence of contamination uh, occurring in messy laboratories. Now, there is some evidence. Let me let me qualify that. There is some evidence that fentanyl is being introduced into cocaine and other drugs as a way to increase addiction. Hmm. However, you have to balance that against the fact that drug dealers want to keep their customers alive. Drug dealers do not have an incentive in killing their customers. And so now there's some conspiracy theories that the Chinese are trying to kill Americans. And I just I'm not seeing it now. Could the Chinese, if they wanted to crack down on these precursor chemicals to fentanyl and methamphetamine more than they are? Absolutely, they could. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Why aren't they, you know, in part because these are precursor chemicals that are used for other things. Um, Is it also because they're somewhat amoral and they've just really embraced commerce and capitalism? They yeah. really just don't care if they yeah. can get away with it and it makes them, you know, factory owners or, or industrialists rich. They don't really mind. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think if it was their own people, there would be more motivation. But I mean, I think the you know, the thing is the Chinese... They make they they make a lot of money selling to us, and so I just don't think now would they like to weaken us? Maybe for geopolitical reasons, it just starts to get to be a bit of a stretch, and we just don't have mm. evidence of that. Whereas we have a lot of evidence of accidental contamination, and and it's so it's it's well explained by that. But you know, I think there's a setting aside kind of you know what all the motivations are. The question of what do you do about it and. I am very skeptical of being able to stop these drugs from coming into the United States. We weren't able to stop heroin and cocaine from coming in, even though they had much longer supply chains. I mean, you got to remember the supply chain for fentanyl and meth is just it just goes China, Mexico, San Francisco. These supply chains on heroin. I mean, you might remember like you see in these movies or. You know, it's like it was in Afghanistan, you know, they're like, or yeah. like in the poppy fields and then they're moving mm-hmm. it around and it's just more it's much more kind of to process it in a particular way. Plus, it's now so concentrated, you can like mail sufficient quantities of fentanyl to somebody in San Francisco and you have enough to basically supply everybody for a month. So I'm skeptical of interdiction at that level. I'm not against doing things like trying to crack down on the precursor chemicals, but we should be we should be. um we should not we should not count on that. We should not rely on that. Nor do I think so that's on one end. On the other end, there's the individual drug user, let's say somebody just using drugs in the privacy of his or her, her own home. I don't think that's a priority for law enforcement. I think it's a terrible and crazy, but I don't think that 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 police should be trying to go into people's homes and sort out their drug use. I think the right place to focus our efforts is the open drug scenes. And that mm-hmm. is also what law enforcement have basically concluded that's what the europeans have concluded do you you shut down the open drug scenes do you stop drug dealing no do you stop drug use no do you stop drugs from coming to the country no but you 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 solve a particular problem of social disorder you rescue your cities and you make it harder for addicts i mean addicts it's good for addicts to it's good for it to be it's good to reduce the availability of these dangerous drugs because it makes them more expensive. It means people use them less. I mean, I would hear stories anecdotally where addicts would have to like spend the whole day trying to find their drugs, trying to get to the dealer, trying to get across town, trying to find the drugs. That's a much better situation than just to be like five feet away from your dealer and smoking methamphetamine every two hours, meth and fentanyl every two hours. Mm-hmm. In spaces that are supposed to be there for public consumption. And yes. Usage. Yeah. yeah. 
public yeah. plazas, train stations. Yeah, that's it's what we saw here with Venice Boardwalk, and you think there should yes. be a crown jewel of Southern California, a place where people, families can come yeah. and enjoy our, our, you know, the, the natural landscape and the ocean and the beach. And instead, th- this is what there is there. And as you say, I'm um, kind of a breakdown of social order. Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't have to be anything more definable than just that. Yes. Um, and so you also mentioned, uh, and you also referenced, you, you know, a certain approach for law enforcement. I want to get to that in a moment, but um, also towards the the idea of conspiracies and questions of how, what is the motive behind certain decisions that seem to have impact. A gentleman that you worked for named George Soros, his name comes up quite a bit. Yeah. Um, I have a particular uh kind of view on him and his role here i'd love to to know your thoughts on it so on the one on the one side you've got people who seem to think that george soros is part of some either is in and of itself himself or is part of some sinister cabal that has a, a self-interest in societal disorder and destruction much like uh in, in referencing some of his bets on currency that that yes. made him wealthy things of that nature then on the other hand you've got people who just dismiss any claim uh, in attaching Soros as a bad actor to any movement or issue, because oh my God, you're just you're just part of some conspiracy. Right. But the truth is pr- is right in between, where yeah. he's just a rich guy with bad ideas who funds bad ideas and is insulated from the impact of them, so he continues to fund them. Right. Yeah. And it doesn't seem more complicated than that. Right. I and mean, yeah, you seems to be your, it's less your interesting thoughts on him as well. It's less interesting. It's more interesting on the one hand. It's less interesting on on the one hand in that. You know, some of his ideas aren't bad. I mean, you know, he also famously funded, um, you know, uh, the free, you know, he funded uh, the, you know, sort of the media during the Soviet Union, during mm-hmm. communism. I mean, he was funding anti-communist, I mean, you know, anti-communist uh, literature, you know, during mm-hmm. the 80s. Um, he's funded all sorts of human rights stuff that I think most people would agree with. What's more, and, and yeah, I mean, I get accused of it too. I get accused of anti-Semitism because I even mentioned Soros. I then, which is crazy, which is bonkers. You know, I also then, of course, worked for him, so that I, so what the idea would have been that I somehow became anti-Semitic. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Um, but then I was being dragged on by the right yesterday because I argued that that's not what's motivating Soros, and that what well, we know, we know what's motivating Soros. He's he's what I would, I think, the right label is left libertarian it's libertarian in the sense that and he says this and i quote i quote his guy just his his the person i've known who worked for soros for many decades just saying that he said you know george thinks that if people want a product they should be able to have it i mean that's your standard libertarian case for drug legalization um it's not a view I hold. I, I I love freedom, but I don't think you should just be able to have anything you want. You know, that's not, you know, if it causes significant harm, I, I think it should be regulated or, or prohibited. Mm-hmm. And then the left wing part is the idea that to victims, everything should be given and nothing required. So it's really this idea that I get it in the, in the book. It gets summarized at best in my argument with a ACLU attorney where I say, well, what should we allow public defecation? And she goes, well, it depends. Is it a frat guy? <laughs> you remember this passage? Unbelievable. Yeah. She yeah. kind of goes, well, is he a frat? Is he like a frat guy? If it's a frat guy urinating, the police should arrest him. Mm-hmm. But if it's a poor homeless guy who's mentally ill, who's defecating, he should not be arrested. He should be offered services. 
And I was in my where I come down on this is I kind of go, this is all comes also comes out of a kind of um, demonization of the police. And I think some genuine confusion, but also some deliberate misrepresentation, which is that just to be arrested, people think people conflate arrest and incarcerate. That's I think people that don't know much about the criminal justice system do that. Yeah. I've asked people before I go, do you think when I say arrest, I'm saying incarcerate? And they go, well, yeah, of course. And I'm like, that's not what it means to be arrested. Like you can be arrested and given a ticket like it doesn't. So but you should be arrested for breaking laws and then there should be some consequence. And if you're mentally ill, the consequence should be that you get treatment like the consequence isn't necessarily punitive at all. It might be good. It might be medicine or if but if but if you but there's also some coercion that might be required. So, you know, where I've come down to it is I go, look, we should not criminalize addiction if your addiction if you're able to be an addict in the privacy of your own home and you're not causing any harm to anybody else, fine. I think that's terrible, but I'm, that's just my moral judgment. I don't want to use taxpayer money for it. Um, similarly, you can be homeless, you know, but you can't sleep there. And if you try to or you defecate or whatever, you're going you to get arrested. And then yeah. you can have an alternative sentence, which might include rehab or drug treatment. But that's not the same thing as you're you're. You're enforcing laws for social order, not against addiction or homelessness. Yeah, it's when that left libertarian ideal then starts to have negative externalities, because once again, at some point you have to prioritize the interests of people who aren't homeless addicts, of your normal uh, roof over their head, tax paying citizen who you're supposed to uh, regulate public spaces in a manner to allow people, tax paying citizens to enjoy those public spaces. And that the priority of of law abiding citizens just never seems to come into effect when these people talk about this issue. Um, And yeah, as I discussed with a gentleman I had on um, a couple months ago, he's a deputy district attorney here in Los Angeles named John McKinney says, yeah, a lot of these addicts, we were able to help them when we arrested them. Yes. the the treatment programs came into play once we detain them. If you yes. don't have one without the other, you just get zero. Yeah, absolutely. I think I follow him on Twitter. I, see, I think he's a critic he's of, of Gascon. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, it's a big lie that it doesn't work to arrest people. It's often the only way people can get free of their addiction. Yeah. And and the proof is in the pudding, right? I mean, how much more evidence do we need to show that this approach leads to a tear tear of that social fabric and essentially ungovernable cities and unlivable cities, which is what we're seeing. And so at this point, I mean, they're just they're doubling down on uh, on failed policies because they don't want to admit that they were wrong. Um, Speaking of another area where that is occurring, that also uh, our buddy Soros has some relevance to is the kind of demonization of law enforcement, the. Uh, and, you know, the imposing of kind of decarcerationist, reckless district attorneys that are funded by George Soros. No, this is not a conspiracy. Please go do the research. It's all yeah. publicly available. He proudly admits to funding these people. Anyways. Oh. Um, and not so, that, but look, by the way, this is a whole book about it. It's a good yep. book. I was just referencing it. It's a long book. It's got it's by a Yale professor all about Soros's funding for these guys. So yeah, I believe that's called Charged: The New Movement to Transform American Prosecution and End Mass Incarceration. Got it. And it's under the guise of ending mass incarceration, they've simply taken reckless policies to let let one let criminals out of jail when they don't need to, and two, not monitor them or help them integrate into society. And that's yes. something that Gavin Newsom is doing. I'd love to hear you you know uh, des- uh, yeah. describe. I mean, how he's contributed to this problem. 
um, in reducing the prison population in California simply for the sake of reducing the prison population, yes. not in a manner intended to uh, uh, to align with public safeties, shutting down yes. prisons and intends to shut down more. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I think this is very interesting and nobody's talking about it. I mean, he... So, and I'm the first because I'm because I'm running for office. So it's not my job to be to be obsessed with Gavin's statements. But I've been going through his own evolution. And in the fall of 2019, he goes, "I'm taking very seriously this problem of how do you release people from prison without them becoming homeless and criminal." He's very serious, and he sound I kind of believe him in the fall of 2019. Well, then you get to 2020, and he starts letting everybody out. Now, they had COVID as a bit of the excuse for it, but it keeps going. And then in the fall of 2020, he goes, well, there's been no increase in, sorry, the fall of 2021, he goes, there's been no increase in crime, but there had been. Yeah. And then he says, oh, and the other thing he says in 2019 is he goes, he goes, maybe I'll be able to shut down a prison at some point. Well, now they're talking, they said, then they said last year, we're going to shut down two prisons. Now they're sending a shut down three prisons. Part of me is very suspicious of this, in part because, you know, we had this recall election last year. He received a million dollars from George Soros for, to fight the recall. You start to wonder, is he sort of did he you know, I think it's partly also he's confident that he can be reelected despite my running um, mm-hmm. and it has raised all that money. So I think he just feels like he can go further for the kind of Soros progressive agenda that maybe he could have in 2019. So he's supported, and I guess, and this is a point that you make often, is that while he has limited direct impact on on incarceration, criminality, and law enforcement, he his voice in the bully pulpit as governor, as the loud, you know, the most prominent political figure in the state, who he supports matters, and he has yeah. supported people who have contributed to this problem: the decarcerationist DAs, Chesa Boudin and George Gascon. Then he had the choice on who to replace Kamala Harris as his attorney general. He right. put a, a another decarceration quote unquote reformist Rob Bonta. So he continues to contribute to this problem. Yep. Now we're starting to get some indicators that the people, uh, uh, the citizens of California have had enough. Looks like Boudin's going to be gone on June 7th. Yep. Um, the Gascon recall, it's uh, it's just a function of uh, his numbers are way underwater. It seems to be a function of signatures. It's going to be down to the wire as to whether or not we get enough signatures to get a recall of him on the ballot. Um, Newsom and another California political actor, San Francisco Mayor London Breed, um, Breed more forcefully has said, okay, I get it. I read the tea leaves. Californian, California citizens are tired uh, uh, of this failed, uh, this failed experiment in decarcerationist and reducing the prison population just for the sake of it, as opposed to matching criminality and public safety. Um, what's your read on where the state's at in general uh, in terms and, and how Gavin and the statewide actors see it in understanding that regardless of how they want to fudge the numbers, citizens in California have had enough and they believe crime to be a massive issue? I, you know, I think that the elites are continue to be really out of touch with voters. I think that they live in a bubble. They live in a media bubble. The newspapers tell them everything's great. They, they do what the experts say they should do. You know, the polling has demonstrated they have a problem, but I think they feel pretty confident they can they can handle it. But no, I mean, I think we are I think they feel like they can cut their losses with the D.A. recalls. But it looks like you're right. Chesa Bodine is almost certainly going to be recalled in June. I do think they're going to get the signatures to recall George Gascon in November. He's the DA of LA. 
I think then that he will be recalled. I think uh, Caruso will be elected mayor. He's the former Republican turned Democrat in L.A. He'll be elected mayor. So I think that there is a big wake up call and backlash coming. Uh, I'm obviously trying to speak into that running for governor. By the way, this is, I think, a chance for me to say Schellenbergerforgovernor.com. You can find out more about all my issues. You can make a donation. But I think that there is room there. You know, I think what I've shown in my candidacy is that there's room for somebody to tap into both the concern around growing crime and homelessness, but in ways that I think continue to respect the liberal commitment to, you know, human rights and the libertarian commitment to freedom. No doubt. And you did reference your website. But if you could, just to the, the audience that may be less familiar with you, how to learn more about you, um, where to find you on the Internet, how to support your candidacy and and just get more involved on, on behalf of the righteous causes that we've discussed uh, during this conversation. Yeah. So Schellenberger for Governor dot com. There's no C in Schellenberger, just Schellenberger like it sounds on Twitter. It's Schellenberger MD. On Facebook, Michael Schellenberger, Instagram, Schellenberger. I uh, welcome emails and comments. I try to respond to all substantive emails. It's just michaelschellenberger at gmail.com. And to just finish off here, when you go and read Michael's writings and hear his message and you compare that to what is being peddled by Gavin Newsom trying to peacock for Iowa voters for a potential Democratic primary, I believe you will find it shocking the gap in pure uh, knowledge uh, how informative and simply sincere and likely he is, Mike is to solve these problems as compared to Gavin. Um, take a look. We, we would love to uh, obviously to hear from you, from everybody who uh, values these issues, who is interested in the welfare of California. So, Mike, thank you for everything that you do and thank your interest you, in these topics. And it was a pleasure speaking with you today. His pleasure was all mine, Matthew. It was wonderful to speak with you. This is the prevailing narrative. I am Matt Belinsky. Once again, you can listen and subscribe to The Prevailing Narrative on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Make sure to follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. The Prevailing Narrative is a Cavalry Audio production in association with iHeartRadio. Produced by Brandon Morgan, executive produced by Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Matt Belinsky.